0: My name is Frank. We are glad that you are here. If, you're first, if this is your first time here, I'm one of the pastors and uh, what they call the primary communicator. Most often you're going to see me up front, but uh, about 25 or 30% of the time we got other guys that like to do it as well. Um, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll get there in a second. We are finally in chapter 9 and uh, we'll be looking at the first five verses and, and mentioning the sixth as well. Uh, a couple of announcements, three announcements actually to kind of get you up up to date with what's going on in the community. First of all, two weeks from yesterday, so Saturday, April 5th, uh, we are having a Redemption Women's event at a place called Jam in Old Scottsdale, Old Town Scottsdale, uh, so it's down there on First Street uh, around 69th, uh, I believe, um, from 9 o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock, Uh, They're going to be talking about how the gospel intersects with culture. And their speaker is going to be our own Sean Mortensen. He's one of the elders here. And in addition to being at JAM, you will also uh, have um, uh, at your disposal the Waffles Love food truck. So you're going to have Waffles. You're going to have Sean Mortensen. I don't know why you'd want to be anywhere else on that Saturday morning. So please RSVP if you plan to be there. And uh, uh, you can do that either through the city or you can contact Caroline Van Slyke. She is um, uh, the leader of our Redemption Women here. And uh, if you're not sure about how to get in touch with her, just just find uh, Stephanie Shoemate uh, and she'll be able to help you with that. Uh, second thing we want to mention is <clears throat> uh, the uh, M25 offering in two Sundays, April 6th, will be for the... Um, Uh, Phoenix Women's Hope Center, and uh, we are in the process of putting together a list of things that they need, so you can imagine what they would need. They're going to need all kinds of household and and bathroom uh, staple items, so... it includes all of those things, but we 're also next week in the bulletin we 're going to have an actual list for you to to look at and give you a week to go out and buy those things but i 'm telling you if you just if you buy diapers and toilet paper and and, and soap products and those things, th- those will all be put to to use, but we'll have something specific for you next week. And we will be taking that offering and collecting those things uh, two weeks from today. So be aware of that. And then the last thing is Easter is rapidly approaching. Easter is Sunday, April 20th. We are going to have our regular service times on Easter Sunday, so 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Uh, obviously, we're going to have a much larger crowds for both of those services. So, in terms of parking, we already know that we have a parking issue here. Um, we would just encourage you to be patient, but also consider parking across Thomas Road on 42nd Street or at Phoenix Seminary and getting a police escort across Thomas Road. Some of you have always wanted a police escort. This is your opportunity now to have that. If you would just park over there, um, uh, you can have that. But uh, we look forward to a wonderful Easter, and we would encourage you to invite everybody on Easter Sunday. Uh, this may be a shock to some of you, but we're going to talk about Jesus and the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and it's going to be awesome. And then Friday night before Easter, we are going to have our annual Good Friday uh, service. It will be at 7 o'clock from 7 to 8 o'clock right here in this uh, building. It'll be primarily singing and some uh, readings just an hour long, and we are going to have child care for that service Friday night. But it'll be child care for uh, children zero to three years old. But we are going to provide that as well. So uh, if you're planning on coming uh, to that, which we hope you do Friday night the 18th, and you have children zero to three years old, we'll have a place uh, for them uh, as well. So that's it. You're up to date. All of those announcements are in your bulletin as well if you need more information. And uh, let me pray, and then we'll get into Romans chapter 9. God, we are thankful that you have called us and that you have gifted us And that that we are even here this morning to hear what you have to say to us, but also to be able to worship you and to draw closer to you. We've been singing, we've been praying, we've read your word, and now we're going to do our best to unpack what you have to say to us. And so God, as that happens, as always, I just pray. uh, These are some challenging texts that we are in the midst of. And so I pray again that that you would use me, but you would use me in such a way that I would be out of the way so that your word will be clear. God, that's all of our prayers this morning. We also pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to truth and that we would be able to, as difficult and as challenging as that might be sometimes, that we would be open to that and we'd be willing to, to wrestle with that. So God, help us this morning to push and pull. We know that you love us. We know that you sent your Son to die for us. We know that he is raised and he is sitting at your right hand now, interceding for us. So God, with that confidence, we come to you and ask that you'd bless our time together and that you would have all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're a pretty good reader and you know something about biblical history, it is likely that you might be asking this question in the wake of what we talked about last week, which was Romans eight thirty one through 39 where Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You might think about that and you might ask, well, if we can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, what about some Jews who have also experienced God's favor but have apparently been separated now from God? Well, that's an excellent question, and the five verses that we look at this morning, uh, these verses are Paul laying the groundwork to not only answer that question, but also to answer questions in general for the next several chapters about God's justice, God's mercy, God's sovereignty, and yes, even God's fairness, if you want to use that word. Uh, Chapters 9, 10, and 11 show us that God is just and righteous in spite of his apparent rejection of some Jews as well as others. And, and then this principle that we'll be looking at, as well as other principles that these chapters contain, also apply to his righteous and just election of anybody. And so if, if you're sitting there and you've been with us for a while now, you realize we may have tantalized you a little bit, a few weeks ago with Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30 foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification and glorification. But now we are going to dive headlong into the weeds. We are in the weeds my Arcadian brothers and sisters and we're going to be there for a little while and we're going to be wrestling with these issues. Uh, the great New Testament theologian James Montgomery Boyce claims that verses not excuse me, chapters nine, 10 and 11 in Romans are the most difficult chapters in all of the New Testament. In these chapters, you and I are going to wrestle with election, and you need to understand the word "election is used in these chapters, so we have to wrestle with it. We're going to wrestle with the consistency of God's election of Israel and, and that compared to the consistency of his election of Christ's followers today. We're going to discuss and, and, and push and pull with the reason some Jews were not saved, just as some people today are not saved. We're going to talk about the role that our disobedience plays in the midst of all of this. We're going to, we're going to hopefully walk away from all of this with a potential deeper understanding of our salvation and our faith. Uh, we're, we're certainly going to look at the good news that all of this is the result of God's mercy If you look ahead just a little bit to verses 15 and 16 in chapter 9, you will see that Paul keeps pointing at God's mercy as the the starting point for all of these conversations. And we will eventually get to a point where we will discuss the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church at Rome in the midst of all of this because there was tension between those two people groups in that church. And Paul is working on, on addressing some of that. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who is also a great New Testament theologian and wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, he says, these, these verses that we look at today, this is God's work in history past and history to come. And one question we should be asking while wrestling with this is how you and I fit into it. F.F. Bruce also says that chapters 9 through 11 are a treatise on human unbelief and divine grace. They are a treatise, an essay, a a, a doctrinal statement on human unbelief and divine grace. And verses 1 through 5 are the problem specifically of Israel's unbelief. And verse 6 in the midst of this is what we would call our hinge verse. If we go to verse 6, and I'm going to read that first. If we go to verse 6, we see that verse 6 looks back at verses 1 through 5. But it also springs us forward into the rest of chapter 9 and even into 10 and 11. It's the hinge verse on which all of this hangs. And so let me read that verse to you. Amy also read it during the reading. And then we'll go back and read 1 through 5 and we'll start unpacking 1 through 5. Paul writes in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's he's letting them know that just because not all Israelites are saved, the word of God has not failed. And he says that after he writes these words in verses 1 through 5. And I just want to notice, because I'm going to hit on this when we get there, notice the threefold denial of lying that Paul starts with here. It's kind of interesting. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about his fellow Israelites. Paul is Jewish. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed, however. Okay? So the big idea today is Paul's heart for the lost. His heart for lost people. That's the big idea that we're going to be looking at, but it has several components. So let's just start by walking verse by verse through through what we're going to talk about and then we'll we'll end with three questions that I'm hoping will will provide us with some strong application for this passage. The first thing I would ask is is why the threefold I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. The Holy Spirit bears witness to this. I mean, it kind of sounds like he's lying you ever run into somebody like that? They come to you and they go, no, 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 here, listen, no, no I'm telling you the truth, I mean it, I swear, I'm not lying, to, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm an honest person, and you look at him and you go, yeah, right. You're protesting a little bit too strongly there. Well, he's not lying, and, and scholars say the reason that he does this is because what he's about to say is extraordinarily challenging, and what he's about to say is desperately emotional for him. This betrays, his, his despair in the midst of what he's going to talk about. He, he's, he knows he has to do this, but humanly speaking, he's not really excited about the truths that he's about to unpack for us. Paul's getting ready to deliver some very challenging truth to us. Now, you have probably, in your life, you've had people speak truth to you, right? When people speak truth to you, tough truth... It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Isn't it hard when, when somebody sits you down, squares you up, looks you right in, the eye, right in the eyes, and says, Okay, here's something you really need to know. This is part of your blind self. This is something that you need to wrestle with. This is something that you've been doing. You may or may not be aware of it. It's hard when somebody does that, right? Doesn't it help? If we know that the one who is speaking this truth to us is coming from a position of love for us rather than a position of glee, you ever had anybody speak truth to you that seemed it's, they, they were a little bit too joyful about it. <laughs> I get to tell you what's right because you're so ignorant. it's helpful if they don't if they're not cold and harsh or indifferent I'm just going to tell you the truth and I don't care how you react, you're just going to have to build a bridge and get over it. That's helpful too, isn't it? Or or maybe somebody that's doing it in triumph. I am the one who has the truth and you don't. And so, I will be gracious in my victory and impart this truth to you. Doesn't it help if they don't come to you that way? And we've all had people come to us that way and speak truth. And it's hard for us to hear it, right? Well, this is not not Paul's way. He doesn't want to do that. Paul loves people. And understand, he loves even people who want him dead. He's talking about his kinsmen here, and many of them wanted him dead. They're the ones that gave him the 40 lashes minus one. They're the ones that threw stones at him. They're the ones that that wish he was out of the picture. And it's true, Paul can be very direct and uncompromising in his conviction, but he loves people, especially his kinsmen, his tribe, his family. Martin Luther once wrote this, Love. love is not only pure joy and delight but it is also great and deep heaviness of the heart we live in a culture now that exalts love as as this this emotion and this virtue that has only one side to the coin that it's nothing but joy and delight and goodness and that it never brings us hurt it never brings us despair. It never brings us a deep heaviness of the heart. Love brings a deep heaviness of the heart if you truly love. And so he says in verse 2, I have great and unceasing anguish and sorrow in my heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit, listen, Paul has doctrine nailed. If, if you want to talk to somebody about doctrine, he'd be, the, he'd be the best. He would be a wonderful, a marvelous seminary professor. Who are you taking systematic theology with? Well, the Apostle Paul. Who else? That would be awesome. He's got it nailed. But there's a difference between Paul and, and many people that you and I know today who are doctrinal masters, and this difference is something that we should, we should think about. Paul's doctrinal expertise never made him a cold person. And Paul's doctrine never made himself a cold person. He was was a doctrinal master, but he still loved people. He was not harsh or gleeful or indifferent. He He had a deep emotional desire that people would know Jesus and know God. Now, that leads to this question, which I've asked myself, years ago, and that I have had many people ask of me. Well, well, look at Paul. Is Paul more gracious and loving than God, then? It seems as though Paul is more concerned about these lost souls than God is. Is that possible? Well, here's how we'd answer that question. When someone has experienced the love of God through Jesus, as he explains in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39... That person, his or her heart, cannot help but become one of compassion and love. It just can't help it. If you've truly experienced God's love through Jesus Christ, you are going to love. You are going to be filled with compassion. And while I recognize the legitimacy of that question, especially based on the text and based on our perceptions as human beings, I get all of that. I would also give a word of caution here. I would ask this question. What is your heart in the midst of asking that question? Are you asking that question because maybe you also feel fairly certain that you are more compassionate than God as well? God doesn't seem to care about these people. I care about people. Am I more compassionate than God? When I first asked that question the first time, there was that quiet certainty in my own heart It was in a dark place in my heart, but there was that quiet certainty that maybe somehow I had it more figured out than God and I was more compassionate than God. And often when people come to me and ask me that question today, they ask it with with that sort of ethos, that what I call self-righteous compassion ethos. Look how compassionate I am. I I have been justified by my compassion. I have been made righteous by my compassion. No, no. You're justified and made righteous by Christ and Christ alone. And then you can have righteous and just compassion. And that's where Paul is coming from. He's coming at it because he knows the love of God. We should be very careful. Elsewhere in Scripture, on on different occasions, Paul will even talk about it later in Romans, we are told to think of ourselves with careful and sober judgment we should be very careful of thinking too much of ourselves Paul says in Galatians 6 he even says those who think too highly of themselves they are self-deceived that's one of the problems with exalting the human over and above God Paul nails us and says you're self-deceived if you do that it's a mark of someone who is practicing self-deception and by the way It's our favorite person to deceive, isn't It's ourselves, right? So humility and sobriety has to be engaged when we we go after this. We must approach this stuff with with great humility, thinking through things, and even then recognizing that God has it right, but maybe we're going to get it wrong. And so with that in mind, let me just pause here and remind us that This passage, this paragraph, again, is in the wake of Paul asking the question in chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? He's not done answering that question. These things of foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification these things of God's goodness and purpose and how he works things together what do we say to those things the first answer he gives us is is in chapter 8 verses 31 through 39 he says this is a good thing because nothing can be nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ this is a very good thing for us but now he moves into another section where he says there are some other things that we need to deal with when we talk about these things And in this particular paragraph, he moves on to saying, listen, I understand that God's plan and purpose might appear to be unfair and unjust. I get that. But you need to understand that you're not the only one wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with it too. This has brought me great and unceasing anguish and sorrow in my heart. And someone might say, well, then Paul, why don't you renounce God? And Paul would say, I can't. He's God. He does what he wills according to his good and his purpose. I can't. Paul understands that God is God. God is sovereign. And he's just, Paul, the apostle. And so then he says in verse 3 For I wish, I, I could wish, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. According to the flesh. I wish I could be accursed and cut off. The, accursed and cut off translates the Greek word anathema. And you know the word anathema, right? We have that word in, in our English language. And when we use the word anathema, it's, it's usually not to compliment something, right? Anathema, the synonyms would be something's an abomination. Something is a horror. Something should be Cursed. The word in the Greek literally means to be damned. He says, I, I wish that I could be damned instead of my brothers. He's, he's willing to give up his faith, his privileges, the inheritances that come with that faith. He would spend eternity in hell if he could exchange that for the salvation of his people. And And Paul is a harsh guy with a hard heart. That's generally how Paul is characterized in, in our world today. That he's, he's this, he's this kind of jerky guy that's mean and... Doesn't have much of a heart, certainly a chauvinist. That's that's how he's characterized. There's even a book out. It's on my stack. It's one of the next three that I'm going to read. It's titled Jesus I Have Loved. But Paul? You see how we wrestle with this? Okay? Paul Paul loves people. And, and again, like I said last week, it would be really helpful if we could start to kind of dig into some Old Testament history and understanding. Um, the book of Exodus provides us with a lot of background for chapters 9, 10, and 11, especially chapter 9. And, and, and here in particular, it seems as though Paul has in mind specifically Exodus chapter 32. I'm not going to read you Exodus chapter 32, but I'm going to give you the frank notes, okay? I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase the story for you because it's clear that Paul had this in mind when he writes this. And by the way, if you're into psychology, this, this chapter in, in Scripture, Exodus 32, might be a good psychological study. It seems, it's just interesting, okay? So Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the law from God, and he's up there for 40 days. And apparently that's way too long for the Israelites down, down at the bottom waiting for him. And they go to Aaron, who's like second in charge, and they say, hey, Moses, abandon us. Forget about Moses. Would you please make us gods that will go before us? And Aaron, being the stellar, charismatic leader that he is, says, okay. And so he collects everybody's gold, and he melts it down, and he fashions the golden calf. This is the story of the golden calf. And he brings it to the people, and the people see the golden calf, and they say, that's the God who led us out of Egypt. That's the God who will go before us. And they begin to worship and bow down to the God. And they celebrate, and they have a a magnificent feast. They had extra manna flown in from, I don't know, Delaware or something. And it was just this wonderful celebration, and they're partying. And God goes to Moses, and he says, "Uh, hey, Moses, you you need to get back down there. You wouldn't believe what your people are doing. And God says, I am going to consume my people. He's mad. And so before he leaves, Moses turns to God. And, he, and, he, and there's a paragraph in there that is an absolutely magnificent argument that Moses presents God for why God should not consume his people. And God relents. And so Moses heads down. But when Moses gets down there and sees the party and the celebration and the calf, he gets angry. And so he throws down the tablets and he smashes those, starts yelling at everybody. And then then he decides that he's going to do something about this. And so he melts the calf. And then he mixes that liquid gold with the water supply and then has everybody drink that water. That sounds kind of tough. Okay. Let Let me just pause here and ask you this question. Have you ever in your life executed the righteous anger of God in place of God when he didn't ask you to do that? You ever done that? You decide you're going to, for God, just take up God's cause and execute his righteous anger against people. You ever? Yeah, neither have I. So we're good. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to be a part of this congregation. Okay. Then he goes and he confronts Aaron. He says, what, what are you doing? And, and Aaron gives a lame excuse. It, 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 it harks back to Genesis 3, Aaron says, well, the people you left me with, they're the problem. So Aaron blames everybody else but but himself. Let me ask you something. Have you ever blamed everybody else because you stink? Yeah, me neither. Good, I'm good. Okay, we are such a righteous congregation. That's really awesome. So then Moses goes and gathers the Levites. And he says, you need to carry out the punishment for this idol worship. And that was brutal. It involved swords. So now the dust is settling. And the next day comes. And Moses goes back up the mountain. And he goes up to the mountain. And he asks God not to do anything more to the people. He says, don't punish them any further. And he even says to the Lord, I want you to forgive them. But if you don't forgive them, then blot my name out of your book. Keep their names in, but blot my name out. This is Paul saying, I wish that I could be accursed and cut off. God wouldn't do that to Moses. God had anointed Moses to, to lead the people in spite of his faults. And so Paul begins this discussion that we get into in chapters 9, 10, and 11 with a powerful use of biblical history, and he's going to continue that way. For the next three chapters. And I think it's interesting. I want you to think of this. Paul says in verses 31 through 39 of chapter 8. That nobody can be cut off from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But then the first thing he says in 9. Is I wish that I could be accursed and cut off from God. For the sake of my people. And again remember he's saying this about many people who just want him dead. And I get to a point here. You could ask my wife about this. For weeks, I have been wrestling with this text. I look at the text, and I don't ask the question anymore, is Paul more compassionate and loving than God? I look at this text and I say, what's wrong with me? Is Paul more compassionate and loving than I am? Would I wish that I would be... I want to go to heaven. I want to see Jesus. I can't wait. I text and drive just so that maybe it'll happen sooner. <laughs> Seriously, I want to go there. Am I willing to trade that for people that I know are lost? I don't know that I'm there That. And, and one last thing about verse 3, he says, he says they're his kinsmen according to the flesh. In there we have an interesting little tip off of what Paul is doing. When Paul says, according to the flesh, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he's reminding us, and getting ready to talk about these privileges of being the nation of Israel, he's reminding us that just because you were born a certain somewhere, to a certain someone, to a certain group, or a nation, or a tribe, or an ethnicity, or a family, that is not what saves you. You're not saved because of where you were born. You're not saved because of the privileges that you have. Only Jesus saves you. And that's going to be the platform for what Paul argues In the next 24 verses, verses 6 through 29, which we're going to take two weeks to look at. And so then he gets into that privilege stuff. He wraps up with verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read those, unpack them briefly, and then finish with three questions that I think will challenge us and help give us some application to this passage. He says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. The giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh. There's that phrase again. Is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, look at what the Jews were given by God. Look at the advantages and privileges they were given. And I want you to think about this. Imagine, imagine... If you were in their place, imagine standing in this place of radical privilege and finding out it doesn't guarantee that you're okay. It doesn't guarantee that you're God's. It doesn't guarantee that your name is in the book. And and look at all that God gave them. He gave them adoption. He, He took them as his nation. He started from scratch with Abraham and took them as his nation. He gave them the glory most scholars say that it's the Shekinah glory. It's the protective cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It, it's the glory of God that filled the tabernacle with his presence. It's the sign of his presence. The presence of Yahweh with his people. In Exodus 33, uh, Moses makes three requests of God. And one of them is that your presence will always be with us. And God says, yes, that's his glory. There's the covenants. There's the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through 15. There's the covenant with Jacob in Genesis 28. There's the covenant with Moses in Exodus 24. And there's even the covenant with King David in Second Samuel 7. There's the receiving of the law. He gave them the law. The Ten Commandments, the tablets. There's the worship. The worship is the liturgy and the context and the methodology of how to worship God all spelled out for us in the book of Leviticus. It's the promises. He promises to care for Israel through the remnant, mind you, but nevertheless to care for Israel. And it's also the promise of His love for David and the line of the Messiah. He says, and, and, and the patriarchs, you've been given the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from that, we get the tribes and the lineage and the history. And then the eighth one, the Christ according to the flesh. And that's where Paul says, oops, this is Jesus. The Christ is Jesus. He has come. He has lived. He has died. And He's been resurrected. The Christ is Jesus. And He is the reason that Paul has anguish because his kinsmen have rejected Jesus. All of these advantages and privileges, the first seven, they don't mean anything if you get the eighth one wrong. That's the one that counts. And that eighth privilege becomes the point of contention for Paul and the Israelites. Have you ever thought about the difference between privilege and mercy? Probably not. I never had before. uh, uh, Encountering these these verses in these chapters the way I have, you don't usually think of privilege and mercy at the same time, but they're actually interrelated and connected theologically. Here's the difference between privilege and mercy. You and I, in our human nature, we desperately desire privilege, but what we desperately need is mercy. And it's provided to us by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. When we get into the thick of Romans 9 these next two weeks, we're going to find out that it is God's mercy that Paul keeps focusing on. That that's the key. And that mercy comes through Christ on the cross and Christ resurrected. And that God has the right to express that mercy any way He wants because He is God. See, these benefits... And these privileges were not what made the Israelites God's people. It was God's mercy and grace and favor upon them that made them his people. And it's what makes you and I his people today. His mercy, his grace, and his favor. And that's what Paul is trying to point out. And so you and I need to be careful, very careful of falling into what's known as the blessed trap. I knew a guy once a long time ago, attended church every week, but... did not know Christ and readily admitted he did not know Christ and the reason he said is, the reason he didn't is because he said I really don't I really don't I really don't need Christ because this guy had a lot of money and he had a lot of influence over many men so he didn't see his need because he had privilege and so the gospel never penetrated him there there was a part of him that was just haughty and self-righteous and would just kind of look at he'd just kind of go well look at who i am and what i have and 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 that would be his justification and so he had this teflon shield over him as a result of that blessed trap that the gospel could just never get through the nation of israel had all of these privileges but they were not necessarily saved because they were they had fallen into the blessed trap we've got these things We're the people of privilege. They were missing the one that counts, and that's Jesus. And so that's where Paul's sorrow and anguish comes from. And the irony is that Paul, too, he used to have these same things, and he used to count on those same things for his righteousness and his justification before God. Paul makes the argument in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look, You've got to be careful of these Judaizers, these these guys that keep trying to tell you about how important it is that, that, that you have all these privileges of being Jewish. He says, I get that because I was once that way too. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, not the seventh, not the ninth. He says, I'm of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, which is the best tribe of course, because I'm a Benjaminite. I am, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, I'm the LeBron James of the NBA, man. I had it wired. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. You can't get any better with the law as, as being a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am found blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. All of that stuff that he counted as gain, that he thought was privilege, he says, it's loss. It doesn't matter anymore. In verse 9, he goes on to say that he, he considers that rubbish. That word rubbish translates the Greek word skubala, which literally means the combination between trash and human excrement, skubala. So now you have a new word to yell when you hit your, nail, your, your thumb with a hammer, okay? Skubala. Nobody will know the difference, Okay? That's what he says that stuff is. It's scuba. It's rubbish compared to knowing Christ and His resurrection and His sufferings. Paul's always got to throw that suffering thing in there. So that last advantage is the only one that ever that really counts. And then he expands on it in verse 5. He says, Jesus is God and He is over all. Paul says right there, Jesus is God. He says it in Titus chapter 2 as well. He says, we wait for our God and Savior, to come again. He calls him God. But he also says in this passage that Jesus was according to the flesh. And here you go. For those of you that, are, that have never heard this before, this is, this is good for you to hear. You need to understand, Jesus, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And I know that's hard for us to wrap our human finite minds around sometimes. You're going, wait a minute, one plus one doesn't equal one. In heaven it does. This is God's math that we're doing here. He's fully God and He's fully man. He had to be both for our salvation to be secured. He says that He is according to the flesh. We're also reminded in in the book of Hebrews that, that, that He's not a high priest who can't sympathize with us because He is fully human and He experienced the things that we experienced but was without sin. There was a there was a heresy in the early church called docetism where some people came and said Jesus couldn't have possibly been fully God and fully man. He was only fully God but appeared to be like a man. Because he's God he could, he could seem to be a man but he wasn't a man. It was called docetism because it translates the Greek word dokeo which means to seem or to appear. But the church said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. He's both man and God, fully man and fully God. And that's the only way that you and I could secure our salvation is if he's both. So he's the Messiah, the anointed one who is God over all, and we submit our lives to him. And as we close, I've got three questions for you. You and I have many privileges, amen? We have a lot of privilege. Do we count our privileges as, as salvation? Is that what we're counting on? Here's another way of saying it. Are we nominal in our walk with Jesus? Nominal meaning in name only? Listen, I, I don't say this to, to, to disparage anyone. I, I just say it because it's a reality and I deal with it quite often. I, I'm amazed at how many people want their infants or their, ba- or their children baptized, but they don't believe in Christ themselves. I don't get it. They're not walking with Christ. But they want the church to baptize their children. It's it's the same with marriage. For many people, a church wedding is really important, but going to church and knowing Jesus isn't. But they need to get married in a church. Somehow God is going to sanction their marriage, they think, if they get married in a church. And here's the irony to that. You know what the key to marriage is? The key to marriage is knowing and loving Jesus. That's the key to a great marriage. That's the irony. You need Jesus in your marriage more than anything else. Paul says that wives are to respect their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. And I say, you betcha to that. That's really important. It's important to Jackie that I love her unconditionally with compassion and generosity. And it's important to me that she respects me. But I'll tell you what, none of it means anything, if both of us don't love Jesus more than we love and respect each other. That's the key to a great marriage. And there's the irony. I want to get married in the church, but I really don't want to know Jesus. Listen, I love, I love baptisms. I'll baptize anybody, anytime, any day. They want to confess Christ. Somebody got a pool in Phoenix? Oh, yeah. I, l- I like weddings even. Since coming to Redemption Arcadia, I, I do a lot of weddings. I I've done many, but never like here. I mean, it's been wild. 15 to 20 a year here. You guys are like into each other, I'll tell you. <laughs> 15 or 20 a year here since I've been here. And I, and, I, and I love them. But here's what's really ironic about that. And by the way, I say this because I love it. Not one of them has been in this building yet. Not one. But every one of them has been, has been between two people who madly and desperately love Jesus. And they get it. They realize that where they get get, get married is not as important as who the focus in their marriage is. And it's Jesus. And that is awesome. I guess what I'm saying is that we should take our salvation very seriously. And what truly thrills me, more than baptisms and weddings, is when I have coffee with somebody and I find out they really know and they really love Jesus. And that leads to the second question. Do you, and I, do you and I anguish over others who are lost? Do we have unceasing sorry, sorrow about others? Right away, some of you think of family and say, yes, I'm, really, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. Others of us, frankly, think of family and go, doesn't matter to me the way they've treated me over the years. Nope. We think of our friends. We have friends who aren't saved. We have anguish over them. But then you need to understand that the, Paul, the context that Paul is saying this here, it's his kinsmen, his brothers, his nation, his tribe, but it's people who wanted him dead. Do we have unceasing anguish over our enemies who are lost? How about, how about people who sin big and boldly and... And without regret and and publicly, big sinners. You read the Psalms and you see many of the lament Psalms are are the psalmist writing about somebody who just sins and gets away with it day after day and nothing ever happens to them and they have have great privilege. Why do they get to sin and nothing happens to them? And I'm trying to live this righteous life. Do we have unceasing anguish and sorrow in our hearts for them? No. (laughs) Those are hard people to have sorrow for. We're a little mad at them. People with privilege, more privilege than us. Do we have unceasing anguish? and sor- I'm looking to see if we're praying for anybody. Are you praying for people who are lost? Do you have friends, family, enemies? Is there a name that if I say, pray for somebody right now who is lost, do you have a name that you could, you could come up with and pray for? I'm going to ask you to do something. I really hope you do it. I, I want you to write down on your bulletin, on a Connect card, on a giving envelope, I want you to write down the name of somebody that is lost that you, would, that you have sorrow and anguish for. Place it in the offering box during the response time in a couple of minutes. And tomorrow during the pastor, pastor's meetings and the staff meetings, we're going to pray for those people. We'll pray for every one of those. So I'd encourage you to do that. You can start writing right now as I finish the sermon. I don't care. That's the most important thing you could be doing right now. And put it in the offering boxes. Finally, last question. Do we appreciate our witness? Let me explain what I mean by that. When the word witness is used in, in Scripture, it, there's, there's generally three definitions. Two are pretty obvious, but one's a little bit more obscure, and that's the one I want to focus on A witness can be someone who observes something, who sees something. A witness is also someone who can testify about something. And then that third definition that's a little bit more obscure is a witness is is someone who is a link in a chain. See, See, Paul, I think one of the reasons that his anguish and sorrow are so great is because he recognizes and loves the part that Israel has played in the plan of God's salvation. He says they have played a huge part. And I'm a link to that. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, but I am Jewish. I'm the link. I'm looking back, and I'm looking forward. In the church, you and I need to remember that there were saints that came before us and there are going to be saints who come after us and we are currently the link between those saints. As a lead pastor, people always say, you got to cast the vision, you got to cast the vision, you got to cast the vision. And I'm not denying that that's not important. We should cast vision and look to the future. But also, one of the jobs, one of the responsibilities of a lead pastor is not just to cast a vision, but also to preserve and remember the history of the church as well. Remember where we came from. Remember the testimony of those who have gone before us as well. Remember people like Tom Schrader and Justin Anderson and even people before them. We're links in a chain and therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen, if someone is going to hell, it's because of their sin. And if someone's going to hell, it's because of God's sovereign grace and mercy. And God sees us as his link between those two. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Amen. God, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for calling us and we thank You for teaching us challenging truth. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be your witnesses in this world, both to the saints that came before us and the saints that are to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.